my name is Chip Jacobs, and I'm a, a Los Angeles-based author and journalist. And um, I'm in a conversation with the true crime writing legend Steve Hodell, um, who has contributed to an anthology um, about the 1970s in Los Angeles called Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. I also wrote a true crime piece as well, and uh, both of our stories share one very reptilian common denominator, but we'll make you buy the book <laughs> to understand that further. So, Steve, I just want to jump in and ask you this. Um, for people that don't know uh, your background before you wrote uh, your famous story about the Black Dahlia, you know, you, you were a veteran Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective, and I think you, you, you worked like 300 cases, um, uh, which is really a mind-boggling number <laughs> of dead bodies and mayhem and, you know, disenchanting human behavior to consume. Why did you select this one? Um, you know, I asked myself, you know, that over and over, and it, it, was it because of your sort of uh, personal connection to the victim? Yeah, uh, great to be with you, Chip. Um, well, I tell you, you know, uh, 17 years at Hollywood Homicide and, like you say, over 300 murder investigations, and then I was approached uh, by David Kukoff uh, to do something for this anthology on the 70s. And I couldn't think of a better uh, case uh, out of that 300 than yeah. uh, than this one. It really it it really had the stamp of the 70s on it. You know, um, sex, drugs, um, you know, uh, kidnapping, animals, <laughs> murder in the desert, uh, swing pads. Yeah. I mean, you name it. It really essentialized uh, Hollywood. And, and Los Angeles in the 70s. I mean, it was, uh, you know, we were just coming out of the 60s and that moving into kind of a whole new uh, sense of um, ourselves as me, yeah. right? It was the me, me generation, right? <laughs> and, it it uh, was, yeah. Go ahead. I was really, I mean, just the, the way that you um, introduced the sort of heroin of a case and, uh, you know, you were go from your, you know, the place you were living, you know, with your significant other to this woman who you call at first stunning. And, you know, um, it, it, it sort of becomes the question of whether this woman was just, an, you know, a knockout victim, you know, knockout looking victim, or whether she was trying to tell you a Kaiser Sose type of a story. Um, I, and I did want to, I mean, can you elaborate on that? I mean, were you, when you first met yeah. this, met this victim, yeah, were, it was, were you, it was, were, uh, and go ahead. Yeah. No, were you, I mean, were you ambivalent about whether she was guilty or she was in, you know, traumatized? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I walk in to uh, Hollywood station and, and here, here she's sitting there and she is, she's this absolutely gorgeous knockout 26 looks like 18 kind of a yeah. that hippie look long hair just absolutely gorgeous stunning and uh uh you know all the uniform guys are standing around oogling and you know and just uh you know and, and yeah. she she's just this and and but more once i started talking with her she had a presence about her and a strength and it was a uh, i mean she did come off as like as a real life femme fatale i mean she yeah. was this you know, she had this power, and yet she would go from extremely weak and vulnerable and victim 
to this totally large and in charge, you know, back and forth. And it was a long interview. It was about three hours as, as the story unfolds. And, and then she's telling this incredible story. And um, I, I just, you know, became just totally enamored in, in every sense of the word with her. Oh, yeah. and, you know, I've never, I've never met a woman like this. And, uh, and, and, uh, Brandy was her first name, and uh, it, you know it's reminiscent of the song. You remember the old song, "Brandy, what a fine girl, what of a good course, wife you would be." Brandy. <laughs> yeah, I just thought and of that. It, yeah, that was that was a little early in my childhood, but I totally, I, I, I <laughs> that song just uh, reverberated in my ears. I wanted to ask you. You know, you brought it up. That, that our book is about the '70s, and right. um, you know, when I was an early teenager. But I know from my own writing, including in my own true crime book, I, I wrote about uh, a hit in the San, San Fernando Valley. You know, there was a lot of anger and payback in the air in the 70s. It wasn't, you know, we, we it wasn't just all boogie nights and, uh, you know, beanbags and, um, you know, lava lamps. I, I mean, do you think, I mean, was, was this case somewhat symptomatic of the era, era where, you know, there was, you know, close proximity between like a swinger's pad and a murder? I mean, right. do, you know, do you, do you think those kind of unusual, you know, geographies came together? They did. Uh, that, that's a good observation. I, I think that these guys, you know, the, the suspects in this, which uh, as the story unfolds, we discover are, are uh, falling over themselves, and it, it's uh, kind of a gang that couldn't shoot straight. But at the same time, they saw it strictly as a business thing. You know, we're, we're going to yeah. take over the business. Uh, Brandy and and her uh, boyfriend, uh, common law husband, are making a lot of money. You know, we're just working for them. Why? You know, let's flip this around, get rid of them, and and we'll take over and uh, run the business and and make a hell of a lot of money. And it was it was it was kind of like that that was a, a natural for them, and it was just it it was a different type of crime than you than than you see today, really. I mean, it was it went, very much went along with the the mood of the '70s, you know. Yeah. And, and cap, captured that very much so. And, and um, I mean, it's it's one of the ones that's really stuck out in my mind because of it had all of this combination of of factors and. Um, and then of course when we got to the when we get to the trial stage it was just like oh no oh my god i can't believe this is happening so it had so many twists and unexpected turns to it that um um it was just a, a remarkable uh it was just dying to be written yeah it was i mean it really was and uh uh it i mean sort of rem- the case sort of remind it started to erupt but the, but the case did this sort of remind me of you know, uh, dishonor among thieves. Like, you know, the perpetrators believed because what they, what this woman and her common law husband were doing was, was, you know, it wasn't illegal, but it was untoward and scandalous and very confidential. Almost like they could get away with it because right. she would, you know, what, you know, I mean, they expect, they didn't expect Brandon to be walking away from it, and it was miraculous that she did. But, you know, they almost expected she was just going to wander off and never tell the authorities because, you know, she got busted. I mean, she got, you know, she was victimized doing something, you know, that wasn't exactly, um, you know, business license friendly. Exactly. We don't need honor amongst thieves. We're all thieves. And, uh, you know, uh, there's no honor needed in that. And that, uh, you know, uh, but she, you know, 
the most amazing part of it was was the woman inside this this woman. I mean, it she was uh, when she was on when she was, and I think you get a sense of this in my early description of her when she was on. Uh, she was a power to be reckoned with. I mean, she knew what, you know, she shouldn't have lived. She should have been killed along with her husband. Right. But, you know, whatever this inner strength was, this like kind of I relate to a kind of a femme fatale ability to 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 bring to go within herself and, and bring this forward to the point where she literally, you know, uh, talked herself out of being murdered. And, and you, and you just had to you convince captured, three guys. Yeah. yeah. And you just captured it so well. You know, the um, the confident woman that was in the you know interrogation room uh, was the same confident woman that escaped. You know, three men with very sinister intent. I mean, <laughs> you know, right. um, exactly. And, and you also, I mean, I don't know if she's exactly Gloria Steinem. You know, Equal Rights Amendment <laughs> uh, approved. Uh, you know, material. But she was she was an equal partner in the swing pad business. I mean, she wasn't just like the pretty, you know, no, no. Lascivious, lascivious, you know, afterthought. This woman was, I mean, you know, she was the she was the madam. You know, I mean, she was the brains and the CEO. Yeah, she. That's right. She was the businesswoman, uh, and she knew exactly what they needed to do and what they, she they needed to give them. David would. Uh, her, her boyfriend husband was um, uh, strong in his own right, but but she was the real you know she was the real uh, CEO of, of of the corporation so to speak. She and was. Then to I see mean, that think, fall apart, yeah. you know, once we get to trial, and to see wait a minute where'd she go? You know, it was like I couldn't believe the change from the woman I had seen, who's yeah. laying out the whole crime. To once we got to court, it just you know it was a whole different woman, and uh, and you saw the vulnerability, and you saw the weakness, and uh, the anger, and and it was just amazing to see that flip. And uh, I'm surprised that she survived. Uh, she's transported to the desert without blowing the story. She's transported to the desert in a very unusual, high stress way. I'm surprised <laughs> she just didn't have a heart attack. You know, you know. I yeah. mean, it's. Um, you know, I do. Um, my, you know, my next question is sort of personal. It's like you've, you've made such a, uh, you created such a legacy with your writing, talking about, you know, exploring the Black Dahlia killing, um, mm -hmm. serial murder, other things connected to someone you know very well in your own family circle. I mean, was writing this story liberating because you didn't have to sort of reclimb that mountain? You know, or you know, rattle the skeletons. Well, you know, was it a, was there an intoxicating feeling as a, you know as an author to be able to explore something that wasn't so connected to you? You know, that's an excellent uh, an excellent question, um, Chip. It's the first time, really, I can think of that I actually wrote something non-family. You know, it it, yeah. it it broke. Yeah, it was actually a lot of fun to tell you the truth because it was. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I've written four books and they're all on the same investigation and they're they all focus on my father as a serial killer, you know, and, and right. to get away from this when, um, you know, David Kukoff approached me and said, you know, would you do a story? I thought, well, I don't know. Do, do I know how to write stories? <laughs> you know what I mean, yes, it was you like you know, something about something not about my father. How you know? So it was. Yeah, I it was said, sure. Let, 
Yeah, it was free, and it was, and as you say, it was very liberating, and uh, I very much enjoyed telling the story because it had nothing to do with dear old dad <laughs> and, and, and all of that. It was, it was, you know, it really was exhilarating to to do it. I, I just, uh, and it went fast, and um, uh, I was glad, and it also, of course, captures a time. I mean, LAPD's glory days were really from the the mid 60s to the probably the mid or late 80s you know those were called kind of considered the golden years starting out with parker and then uh going through that period and you know the whole dragnet thing and all of that and um uh so it was it was really nice to be able to present how different it was back then you know i mean we were just beginning to transition from a a very corrupt department of the 40s and 50s into the you know the new breed the thin blue line and and remake ourselves yeah. into professionals and, and get away from all of the bad old days so to speak so it was a it was a great time and, and um uh i i was glad i was able to present and give a feel of um what it was like back then 40 years ago well, you, you definitely did. Um, you know, if, if I was trying to describe this, um, describe your story in, in relativistic terms, I would say it was, you know, it was a it was a story Stanley Kubrick could have, you know, uh, turned into a film, but it was written in a very Raymond Chandler, you know, kind of poet poet uh, potent sto- stoicism. And um, I mean, from talking about you being three scotches in when you got the call to yeah. you know your you know very stripped down prose. I mean, when you I mean, who are the people that you look up to as uh, as an author when you're thinking of great writers and you you want to sort of catch somewhat their spirit? Are there people that you you know writers that you know you sort of follow? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, I'm not. Uh, I, I read very little fiction. Um, uh, I, I love uh, nonfiction, so I'm not really. I had read almost. You know, I hadn't read Chandler. Uh, huh. I hadn't read Hammond. I, I hadn't. You know, I just. You know, I I never thought I'd grow up to be a writer. You know, I always. Uh, yeah. I was kind of pulled into this, as you know, and it was. I was forced to write and tell the story. Uh, because of the conditions that unfolded after my retirement from LAPD. So I never really planned, and I, and I never have really read an, too many mysteries. I'm totally hooked on Michael Connolly, though, I must say. I I, uh, well, I think you need to go back and read The Big Sleep <laughs> or The Long Goodbye. Yeah, I, there's a lot of them I need to read, and and, and uh, I haven't. And, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to even admit that because uh, – you know, I love the I love noir movies and films, and, and some of the greatest ones have been the Chandler ones. And and uh, but you you know you course. bring readers into your story very much like uh, you know um, uh, you know like a, a literate detective. You know, and it, you do, it does feel like you can I, you can just kind of feel that yellow light bulb, and you can taste the bad coffee, and you know <laughs> uh, you know you can see a victim squirming on a really uncomfortable metal chair. And uh, it jumps back and forth in time. So, uh, you know, I, I thought it was really good. And um, it's, I definitely could see a movie of, of this story, um, especially if we're a little unsure about the truthfulness of the different players. I did want to ask you, you know, um, in, in this sordid, you know, bizarre case where this woman escapes, 
almost inevitable murder, you know, right yeah. out yeah. in the desert next to, you know, someone she loves. Did the, you know, the the defendants, the, you know, as you mentioned, you know, they got softer jail terms. Did they ever get out of jail and commit other crimes? Whatever happened, and whatever happened to Brandy? You know, we, we I got to know. Yeah, well, so, you know, I I, lo- I don't know what happened to Brandy. Uh, uh, I don't know if her life crumbled and she just, uh, you know, uh, got into deeper into drugs and and uh, alcohol and stuff or what. I never, you know, one of the things you you don't do generally is fo- do any follow up on your victims. Uh, you know, yeah. it's very rare. So I don't I don't know what happened to her after that. In fact, the last communication I had with her was uh at at the trial you know and that's that ending scene which uh you know was quite dramatic in itself and uh she, yeah I, she, I had heard she left hollywood and that she uh you know I'm, I'm guessing she probably went to back to the midwest and and married some very wealthy guy and lived hopefully hopefully lived happily ever after but i don't know because she would have made uh someone a, a, a really uh good wife because uh she had a lot of common sense and you know she was so street smart and, and she was able to channel that and there was a there was a she was unique in the sense that uh there was kind of a street lo, kind of a low life street part of her but also there was a very high class you know ability she was she was able to raise herself and and come off as a very classy woman and uh you know uh, I, that was the part that just amazed me when I when I watched her change from you know and go into the separate pieces of herself. But I don't know what happened yeah. to her. Now, as far as the guys, they did. I think they did eight years. So they were out in the early '80s, and I don't know. Uh, again, uh, uh, I don't know. That should have been a capital case because you've got kidnap, you know, murder, premeditation. Uh, Premeditation, you know, ex- exactly, and it should have been a really easy win for, um, you know, uh, a capital case and uh, at least life without possibility of parole because they uh, they changed they changed the death penalty. Back yeah, but it, as you as you as you talk about in the in the end of the piece, you know, they they victim shame Brandy, and because of that, I think the. Uh, DA's office hands were tied about going about, you know, oh, yeah. about retrying and getting a getting a you know capital murder conviction no. against them. I mean, it's no. stunning that these killers, you know, that ruined you know that ruined so much, you know, basically yeah. spent two presidential terms in jail and got out. So exactly. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, I exactly. I, what? Yes. Well, anyway, okay. um, it's an amazing story, and I, I really uh, – I was gripped by it, and I don't think I'll be the last. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Well, let's transition now into your story, which I also found absolutely amazing, and it it really, truly captured that time period and, and brought back – because I was here and, and remember, you know, I, I only knew the surface uh, facts surrounding your story, and uh, but I remember, you know, it was a big deal, big news thing at the time and um but first let me let me do a little let's let's introduce uh the listeners to to uh to, to chip jacobs a little bit let me re- let me read from your bio because it's it's you've got such a an amazing uh writer's background and uh so i'm, I'm looking here at your 
you know, your short bio, and it says, Chip grew up in northeast Pasadena. You graduated from USC in 85. You got two children, what, boy, girl, two boys? Two girls. Two girls. Yeah, two daughters. And yeah. And, and your wife's public relations professor at USC. Uh, you've got a master's in international relations. And, of course, your articles uh, as a journalist have appeared in the L.A. Times, Daily News of L.A., L.A. Weekly, New York Times, CNN, Chicago Trib, on and on. And, um, and then you're the author of, I don't know, half a dozen books at least. Um, your most recent is Strange as It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Zaylor which I read and absolutely loved, uh, your uncle and his remarkable life in Hollywood. I mean, it, listeners have got to read that one. It's just, it's just talk about stranger, you know, fa- you know, truth, stranger than fiction. I know. It really is. Um, and and uh, let's see, uh, you did The People's Republic of Chemicals and bestseller Smog Town, The Lungburning History of Pollution in Los Angeles. And then you did, oh, of course, the other one. I think I first met you uh, when you had just finished writing The Ascension of Jerry, Murder, Hitman, yes, and the Making of L.A. Muckraker, Jerry Schneiderman. And uh, that was about four or five years ago, right? Something like that. Correct. And and uh, I, I was just a, a wonderful uh, true crime uh, book that I highly recommend to everybody. And... Um, and then you did a book which I'm not familiar with, but I, I want to get, which is uh, the Black Wednesday Boys, and it's a profile on Alatori and uh, uh, the pol- our political uh, guy here in L.A. Actually, and, uh, um, it's a biography of um, uh, Black Wednesday is a private issued book, but it's about two really bright um, MBA types that started their own company and became like a Fortune 500 whiz. And then they got betrayed by the banks and, you know, uh, went from $70 million in sales to pittance and rebuilt Ooh. themselves. And, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a story about loyalty in a town that doesn't value it much. I, I was just going to say one weird thing is, you know, when I was a reporter, I never wrote any crime stories, police stories. You know, when I w- had to go in on, on a Sunday shift as a reporter and, and call around to the cop shops, as they're called, the substations, I, I was so uh-huh. out of my depth. I, you know, I, I really? was a political person. Yeah, and so I've, I've done very little true crime. But when I have done it, I you know, the thing I like most about it is the personalities and, you know, the the drama, the buildup of, of collisions of people. I don't like the gore very much. I don't like the exploitation right. of a lot of trashy true crime. But in true crime, you re- people really reveal themselves. That's the thing I've noticed. You know. So, well, you really captured it in the Ascension of Jerry. I mean, you really brought that that whole story alive, and uh, uh, you'd have fooled me because you sure you sure read like a veteran <laughs> crime writer to me. Thanks. But uh, that, that was a great book. Well, let's talk about your contribution to uh, the Los Angeles in the 70s, and which is uh, uh, a chapter called Snake versus Wolf, which is a true story that occurred. Uh, uh, and it's, tell us a little Well, it, it all focuses around and centers around Synanon, right? And, and, yeah, and it uh, it's, it's, it's leader and uh, an interaction between uh, uh, the uh, let's see. Big, it was Big Daddy D- Diederich, right? Uh, right. Charles, Charles Diederich, Diederich was the leader. Right. And tell us a little b- bit about uh, 
and how you got into that and why you why you picked this for uh, your choice for the 70s. Sure. Um, uh, I'll just say that I'm a true crime a neophyte next to you, Steve. But um, um, I actually got interested in this story researching uh, the true crime story of the Ascension of Jerry because both occurred in the late 70s uh, when I was a high school student. And it's a really interesting sociological time, uh, you know, really time of disenchantment, disillusionment. Institutions were under fire. Um, there was a lot of very um, obvious public rage towards the system. And um, in, you know, researching crimes and, and the climate, uh, you know, for the story about uh, Jerry Steiderman's victim, uh, um, you know, a, a kind of a lying space planner who was murdered on a rainy night in Van Nuys in 79, you know, he came across what happened to this lawyer named Paul Morantz in 1978. And Paul Morantz was a Pacific Palisades resident, very good-looking guy, kind of looked like Mark Spitz or Tony Orlando, a little bit younger than them. Playboy, yeah. um, he, was, um, he was kind of a crusading lawyer that had already made a name for himself bringing down a um, very well-known flamboyant judge named Noel Cannon, a.k.a. the Pink Lady, who I think you know about, Steve. He had also, uh, Paul Morantz, who was in his early 30s, he was a former uh, very well-known um, uh, journalist at USC during his days there. Um, he also uh, brought down a human trafficking ring uh, where um, people, where alcoholics coming out of Skid Row would be grabbed, drugged up, and then sold to, like, um, uh, metal hospitals, sold. Uh, you know, so they could bilk Medicare, um, and it was it was quite shocking. However, he had come across a woman that was kidnapped by Synanon, which it started out in Santa Monica in the late in the 60s um, as a, uh, a, a Alcoholics Anonymous splinter group. But instead of so using a rehab the center, right? It was a cold, cold turkey rehab center in, out of Santa Monica. But instead of using the 12-step process, Synanon mm -hmm. used uh, what's called a game, which is kind of acerbic group therapy. Anyway, Paul Morantz rescued a woman um, that had been taken by Synanon. And by the late 70s, Synanon was no longer a, um, a rehab. It was now an alternative lifestyle, mainly based in Northern California, but it still had a huge presence here in Los Angeles on the west side of L.A. And right. um, the, the more this – and Paul Morantz knew nothing about cults, knew nothing about brainwashing. And the more he got into understanding uh, what was happening and that this cult, you know, the Synanon uh, wasn't considered a cult at that second – but um, it was really a giant scam hiding in the mainstream. And, and this was a place where the courts would send wayward kids, where mothers would send, you know, um, you know uh, children that weren't behaving. Right. And uh, it was also support incorrigibles, and it was also supported by members of big corporate America. You know, it was a very legitimized, um, respected place. But uh, little right. did people realize that Charles Diedrich was this demagogue who was going more and more insane. And he sure yeah. put uh, his mark on Paul Morantz once Morantz started, you know, investigating. Right. And so, we had, so, and, and during that time, you mentioned um, uh, a couple of other cults that were, you know, up and coming at the time. There was Est, and there was um, right. the jo Jonestown Massacre, which occurred about the, about the same time as his, his this crime against um, Diederich, right? Weren't those exactly. pretty close together? 
Yeah. Exactly. You know, um, I think people in Los Angeles um, thought the Colts had gone away because the SLA shootout happened in 74. Yes, we had Moonies and we had some other fringe groups, but um, Synanon wasn't considered a cult because it did such a good job masquerading as a social organization. And, um, you know, Jim Jones, he'd moved uh, his group from, you know, sort of San Francisco to South, uh, South America. And, um, you know, all these things were bubbling up. Est, uh, which Paul Morantz also got interested in, actually it was doing um, relaxation techniques for the Los Angeles Police Department. And, well, let me uh, tell you something, Warner, Chip. Let yeah. me tell you something about that. I was actually one of the ones that was – uh, ordered to go and take part in the S training by LAPD. Really? And and, uh, and it was like, as I recall, it was like supposed to be like 60 hours of heavy-duty training over a couple of weekends, as I recall. Anyway, after about 10 hours into it, I said, this is bullshit. You know, this is nothing but a, a, a brainwashing crap. And I refused to go. I, I came back and said, sorry, but <laughs> count me out on that. It was a voluntary thing, but initially, you know, I didn't know much about it, but and so I pulled out of it, but and then later on, I you mentioned in your in this in your uh, article in your chapter that uh, actually uh, uh, Morantz talked Chief Gates into to uh, dropping pulling out, right? Yeah, and yeah. he made a lifetime enemy of Est in doing so. However, Est did not have a militia like Charles Diedrich, who to just right. tell your readers, you know, was in, by the seventies he was in his late 50s, early 60s, and he kind of looked like a deranged Burl Ives from her Christmas story. <laughs> he had a droopy eye. He had kind of a stern kind of, uh, you know, homespun gym coach um, mannerism about him, very folksy. And he was just so full of himself and, and I think mentally ill and believed he could talk anybody into anything. And, um, I, you know, once uh, reporters – and investigative agencies started closing in on him. He would threaten them in unbelievable ways, including on camera, on national, you know, on regional TV. Would say, "Well, I think those people at Time Magazine better be fearful for their own lives." You know, and I mean, I mean, people, people watching this must have wanted to go lock their doors. And um, you know, Paul Morantz, uh, you know, probably sure wishes he would have done the same thing too. <laughs> so, well, I mean, yeah, the, and the story, uh, and then basically the the whole story is it centers around, uh, you know, what what he does uh, to Morantz and the, the the crime he commits, and and uh, uh, how that all unfolds, which is absolutely fascinating. And what a small world, Chip, that both of us in our stories, unbeknownst, I didn't know you were writing yours, you didn't know I was writing mine, and both of us would have a and have a <laughs> a, a, a weapon of choice. <laughs> emerges that um you know that that's pretty I unusual i mean other than those two two crimes i can't think of another one <laughs> that occurred here in la you know th those were but uh, i feel, know, it was just I, feel sorry, I feel i feel sorry for that weapon though because it, you know it, neither of them asked to be you know made hitmen in a story none of them wanted to be pulled out of their natural environment and of course right. they're going to do. Never. Of course they're going to do what's in their DNA, which is be defensive right. and and lash out at human flesh. 
So, um, right. you know, what right. I, what exactly. I, you know, I've, I, I've asked myself, you know, what, you know, Charles Diedrich essentially um, uh, commissioned uh, an assassination of Paul Morantz because Paul Morantz was making news, trying to go against Synanon. He was trying to get their licensing revoked. So they were, you know, subject to the same regulations as other rehabs and alternative societies. He, um, you know, uh, he won a major class action lawsuit against them. Um, but I, I've always, you know, Charles Diedrich, you know, was a, was kind of a madman genius, and I've wondered what did he think was going to happen, you know, if he was able to kill Paul Morantz, and it was national headlines, and the and the, you know, um, you know, the defendant was going to be obvious, the enemy, it was going to be easy <laughs> to figure out who won. What did he think was going to happen that the world was going to buckle and acquiesce to him? You know, and so right. it was a yeah. strange. It yeah. was kind of like the last gasp of a of an insane king, and um, right. you know, in a, in a way, in doing what he did, he brought the beginning of the end of his own empire. So maybe he was self destructive. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 animal really, you know, maybe saved a lot of lives of people that would have gone to this crazy society. Yeah. You know, that was um, and you know by the time Paul Morantz got attacked. Um, Synanon had a, had militarized a group of of zealots in in this camp of people that would shave their heads, sing songs, thought they were living a you know a, a, a sin free life, um, and, and they were beating the crap out of people up and down California. They were threatening reporters on the East Coast. Several people were lucky they didn't have were, weren't killed in front of their families or in the dark of night just by the strangest luck. You know, and so yeah. you know they, they were they were more murderous, you know, in the open than almost any cult I, I can remember. And Paul, you know, Paul Morantz's deal was the finale. Yeah, well, it's amazing. You were really, I mean, you really have captured that that time period. And for a lot of the younger uh, listeners, it's going to be a fascinating read because, um, you know, I know it because I lived it and I was here and and went through it. But but it's all new, and even the Jonestown. Uh, connection is amazing because that was, of course, where we got the term. You know, he's, he's drinking the Kool Aid, and, and um, that mass murder of 900 murder suicide of 900 people in uh, Guyana uh, just was 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 in weeks of of your crime, right? Absolutely, and actually, it happened. Yeah, when Paul Morant survived this unsurvivable attack, um, you know, he one of the interesting things is he had this press conference. Um, at L.A. County General Hospital, and um, he, he was in a hospital bed recovering, and, uh, right. and the danger wasn't over for the guy just because he got attacked. But, I mean, there were right. so many journalists in this room. It did remind you of Yoko and John Lennon's bed in for peace in Amsterdam. <laughs> you know, and, right. and Paul Morant kind of like was a dashing-looking, very handsome, soft-spoken, ambitious guy. He loved the limelight. And, um, you know, he's wheeled out to this press conference, and the moment looks too big for him. You know, he wanted attention, and he wanted to be right. a writer and have a degree of fame, but it, the, the limelight was just too bright for him. And you could almost see in his face, you know, I never bargained for this, you know. And um, I'll tell you, actually, one of the people, um, two, two people at that press conference later died in Guyana um, during the Jonestown chaos. And um, there was another person hurt, a journalist from the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle. And actually, when I was at the work for the Times, he was my editor on one story. 
and uh, really? he was very humble about his experience. Now um, HBO and uh, Vince Gilligan is doing his, a series based on his book about Jonestown. So it's it is a small world, you know. You, it, that degree of separation is very small. Uh, you know, Paul yeah. Morant's story has come precariously close, tantalizing close to being its own movie and story. And it was just like the gods didn't want to reward this incident, you know, with with a story, you know, with you know a narrative interpretation. And it's just the oddest thing. I hope people will read it and realize, you know, no good deed goes unpunished because Paul Morant was that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think uh, I'm really excited. You know, we've got uh, I hope you're going to be there, too. We've got this uh, uh, book launch on on uh, David Kukoff's uh, anthology of the, uh, L.A. in the 70s coming up uh, Friday, the 15th. Uh, no, the 18th, I guess, is in November uh, at the Standard Hotel on the Strip in Hollywood. Right. Um, West, West Hollywood. That's coming up at 7 p.m. And that will be a, a, a fun thing to attend. I'm definitely going to go. And I hope I see you there. And along with us, you know, he's got the book has got what is it? More than two dozen contributors, right? Uh, yeah, it's got all... about it's got about twenty nine thirty um, stories, essays. I mean, I think uh, um, th- there's a really great roster of talent and voices in this, and I like that it's very emblematic and representative, and it's not just sort of you know, the typical, you know, nostalgia, you know, these are stories with an edge and, you know, sadness and joy and confusion about that era. So, you know, I think, right. I do think, you know, I, I, I think this should be taken seriously, this anthology. And so far, I think it's gotten great, you know, it's gotten a great reception. And I'm very proud to be, have a true crime story with you, Steve, because I think we're bringing, <laughs> we're bringing the animal <laughs> world, you know, into, into yeah. the era. <laughs> Yeah, a couple of vipers, and, and, and you know the uh, um, uh, Rare Bird Books is, of course, you know our our publisher, and uh, uh, you know Tyson Cornell has just done a wonderful job of of, of pulling it all together and, and coordinating it, and, and uh, I'm so impressed with him and his abilities, and uh, he loves Los Angeles. I mean, that's his, you know, he lo- loves and lives here, and it's his heartbeat. So, uh, you know, that's he true. put a lot. He put a lot of you know into this book, and it's not just true crime. It's of course arts, uh, uh, the you know uh, music. I mean, uh, every field of of the arts is involved in in the various stories and stuff. And uh, I'm looking forward. I've only the only one I've read is yours so far, and uh, I'm looking forward to taking a deep dive into all of these uh, reflections of L.A. in the '70s. And, and it's been I, I, great well, talking and with I do, you. I do, and likewise, and I do think you know we can glean a lot about the disillusionment of our current time, especially after the election, and what was going on back then. You know, we you do you do survive, you do persist. Sometimes you just have some bruises, and you know, uh, but you you know we do march forward. So right. thank you, yeah. Steve. Pick it's yourself up, brush yourself off, you. and <laughs> okay, great talking with you, Chip, and and hopefully I'll see you Friday. Sounds good. All right. Uh, everybody, please check out uh, Los Angeles in the 1970s, Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine.